Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. Along with Connor Glassy, I'm John Manuel from the Baseball America podcast nook, our 7x16 room. <laughs> I just measured this room today. Very excited to know the dimensions of our podcast nook. Measuring it out for studio lights. Might convert this room to a studio soon. It's going to be very exciting. That'd be uh, nice. But we're trying to go onward and upward here at Baseball America. And, uh, and if you're on BaseballAmerica.com, uh, any time lately you've seen the volume of content has been quite high. We just wrapped up all of our league top 20s. We were so busy with all that, we did not do a podcast last week. And then we have organization top 10s starting to uh, drop in the next issue of Baseball America. We've had our Major League Player of the Year, also happened to be our Rookie of the Year in Mike Trout. Uh, we've got draft report cards that we're going to talk about in this podcast. We have Arizona Fall League coverage, which if you haven't noticed has been Taken up a notch a little bit this year. We've got uh, Bill Mitchell and our uh, spring intern Peter Wardell out in the Arizona Fall League, uh, dropping some video. We've got uh, you know Peter was at the Arizona Fall Classic, so we're looking forward to the 2013 draft. In a couple weeks, the perfect game uh, World Wood Bat spectacular one will happen week. in Jupiter in one week, a yeah. week and a half. Uh, that'll be going on. And oh, by the way, the playoffs are going on. Yeah, and we actually had coverage and stories uh, from a Baseball America point of view on two of the division series, the Nationals and the uh, and the Athletics. So a whole lot of stuff has been going on at BaseballAmerica.com. Hope you've enjoyed the content. I, I know I have, um, and, and we, we'll bring you some more of that today in this podcast, uh, along with me and Connor. This year, uh, first time, we, we, we uh, popped Connor's uh, draft report card, so to speak, and uh, Connor <laughs> uh, did his first draft report cards this year. Uh, how do you feel? Do you have a good smoke afterwards? Yeah, it was nice. You know, I I had a great time. I was glad you guys finally let me in on the uh, on the fun on the fun. I gotta been, say, it was a lot easier. I felt like I wrote better draft report cards because I had ten to write, not fifteen. Right, right. It can be overwhelming, but uh, yeah. it is five thousand. You're basically cranking out six thousand words in a week when you're writing ten. They're between five hundred and six hundred words, and usually wind up getting trimmed down a little bit, but. You wind up writing more, maybe 450 to 600 words. It's a lot of writing. It I is a lot of part, writing. I think that's what the difficult part of doing 10 or 15 is. Yeah, but, you know, I had a lot of fun. And what I <clears throat> what I was surprised, not not so much surprised to learn, but it's just it is a little surprising that it, for as much as we cover the draft before the draft, you still have guys that you kind of uncover or learn about oh, doing, yeah. doing these. You know? and, the dra- and the scouting directors love that. They love finding out, here's a guy you don't have, you Absolutely. guys didn't have. Yep. But there are, like... I do my prep, and we go through all the categories. And for people who aren't familiar, it's a pretty segmented, you know, it's it's a best tools really throughout the whole thing. And then there are other categories. We go over all the players, hitting power, run, defen- d- defensive players. Then we have debuts, most intriguing background, close to the majors, that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, when I go through those, I, I go through our draft reports and say, okay, here, based on our draft reports, here's where I think the winners are in all these categories. And I have that as I ask the questions to all these scouting directors on the phone. And I would say eight out of ten times I had the right guy. Yeah. But there's developments after the draft, after these guys sign. And Connor, I think that was the biggest part this year, was just how different the draft is, especially the, to uh, as far as evaluating your own players. Now that these scouts don't just have the spring to go on, but they have a summer of performance. It's not just the spring, three months off, and then instructs. They right. actually got to see – the vast majority of these of these players in professional baseball this year with the July signing deadline. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I mean, a, a bigger body of of data for for them to evaluate these guys and see them actually out there in game action. Yeah, everyone always likes their draft on June fourth, fifth, sixth. Everyone's excited. No one comes out of their draft room thinking, "Man, we had a terrible draft." 
I completely broke the wrong way. You know, no <laughs> one ever says that. No. Um, but I feel like everyone knows their players a little bit more, and uh, and we know the players a little bit more after this summer. Which is you know, so when we evaluate best drafts in in this new CBA era, uh, Connor, it'd be very easy to do best draft team that had the largest draft pool. And I'm not saying that the Twins had a bad draft because they had the largest pool. We only have them fourth in our best draft list. But I think we all felt like the Astros did a pretty commendable job with. The, I mean, they had a second largest class yeah. of players, and. I thought they rocked it. You know, they Carlos Correa may not have been the consensus of one one talent, but he was certainly the consensus of there's seven guys you could legitimately pick first overall on this draft, and he was in that group, and he had a solid debut. He, the tools looked good, and what they were able to do with the rest of their draft class, I think, basically, if you believe the Astros had the best draft, you believe in Rio Ruiz and the reports that this guy's going to hit. Sure, I think you know, <clears throat> you know, you can argue there were players better than Carlos Correa. Um, but just with the strategy that they did where they, you know, kind of picked a number at the top and said, which, which player is going to take this money? Right. And then we can spread it out a little more, you know, get these other guys, get Lance McCullers, get Rio Ruiz. I thought that was a really smart way to go about things. And, you know, I expect them to kind of use the same strategy again this year. The other, the other aspect for me that convinced me with the, uh, with the Astros is these are the same guys. Uh, Jeff Luno, obviously now the general manager, he brings over Mike Elias from uh, the Cardinals, where he was a area guy and a cross-checker, kind of a scouting coordinator, now the scouting director. He didn't run this draft. This is Bobby Heck's last draft. But they combined some of the best things they did in St. Louis and some of the things that Bobby has done, uh, had done in, Detroit, in Houston. And then you combine that with Sig Megdahl, the uh, decision sciences director. But Sig was really kind of the guy, I think, who pioneered this in St. Louis with these uh, you know, the, the, the spreadsheets and the information, the data that they collect on college players. And they joked, I mean, well, they were serious. Like seven years ago, I remember we made fun of Jeff Luno's quote, or they cracked the code on college stats. Well, I don't think they cracked the code on it, but they did crack a code on productive players in the draft out of colleges. And you look at St. Louis, and you're looking at Alan Craig, and you're looking at guys like Daniel Descalso, and you're looking at John Jay. Uh, basically, the Cardinals did a tremendous job when Jeff Luna was there of drafting college players who maybe don't profile but are good big leaguers anyway. They may not fit into a perfect profile, but John Jay's not a profile center fielder, but he's a center fielder on a world championship team last year and a team that's contending for a World Series championship this year. Um, he may not do it conventionally, but he does it, and Craig's similar. And I, I, Because I, have, I know it's the same guys, I similarly think that the upside guys, the younger high school guys the Astros got, were, were quite good. Correa, McCullers, Ruiz, but I like their college drafts. I like Nolan Fontana. I like Andrew Alpin. I like Preston Tucker, Tyler Heineman. I think they got I got they got good complementary players as well as potential superstars, and that's why I thought they had the best draft. Yeah, it's nice to to balance you know the the high upside high school players with some uh, lower ceiling but safer bet kind of college guys. Absolutely, and I mean uh, to me. And, and you had him in your area. They also have one of the better late-round picks in the draft with uh, Aaron West, yep. the right-hander of Washington. Kind of a sleeper. Again, a guy they really didn't know much about before I started doing draft report cards. We have the report on him, but it sounds like he's even gotten better since the spring. I, yeah, I think he got better since the spring. But even I remember you know, turning in Washington State and then between then and the draft, realizing, hearing from some people out there that I was a little light on him. I think I, I tweeted something about 
Uh-oh, I was light on Aaron West. He's going to go better than I thought he was going to go. And then he went in the 17th round. <coughs> How yeah. low did you have him? Yeah. Did you have him really lower than that? Because he didn't seem like he, he was the 17th player. No, he, how many players drafted out of the state of Washington? Uh, three, six, nine, twelve. He was like the thirteenth player drafted out of the state. I'm sure he was yeah. behind Taylor Ard, right? Yeah. Well, Taylor yeah. Ard was drafted ahead of him, so yeah. you win. <laughs> so, uh, it's a Baseball America podcast with John and Connor. Um, now, Connor, I forget in our top five drafts were any of these the, uh, among the teams that you did. We had Astros, Blue Jays, Cardinals, Twins, Padres. I didn't do any of those. Teams. Top five. No, I had AL West, and then I had Tigers, and I had NL East. Okay, that's right. You had one division, one place, and one of the other uh, yeah. in terms of geography. Right. That was weird how you and Jim split those up. But uh, I had the central. Well. Yeah. It did, yeah. And then you have the, in Detroit because you do their top 30. Yeah. Uh, what was the best draft out of those teams that you did? Well, I think the Rangers. I like I like the Rangers draft. It's, um, you know, when we talk about the Astros balance, I think the Rangers draft is a little bit more boom or bust. I, I think they really rolled the dice on some, some high-risk, high-reward players. But I, I argued for them, you know, getting into the top five for best draft because I do like their upside. I like <clears throat> I like Lewis Brinson a lot. I think he has really intriguing tools and I think you know, I think because of his his long levers and everything, he's gonna strike out some. Right. But he has power, he has speed, uh he can track down balls in center field. He's he's he has, pretty he exciting. has Cameron Mabin upside. I mean he, he has does. a chance to be that kind of player. May I think he'll have similar offensive struggles as Mabin has had. In terms of the the levers and the, but he something has a little chance to have more hit for more power than Cameron Mabin. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I know I know the Rangers are excited about him. I'm, you know, their their scouting director told me he's like, we really like him. We think people are going to look at this draft and and say, wow, you got him at 29th. Right. You know? So and then of course Joey Gallo went out and destroyed, <laughs> pitch. You know, professional pitching. I mean, no doubt. He struck out a lot, but uh, a record for home runs in the Arizona League, and yeah, been a lot of sluggers have gone out to the Arizona League, and you know, been, there's some uh, many years. Uh, if you listen to our last podcast, Cody Decker was one of them. Got, got teams that draft college seniors and send them to the Arizona League to kind of be the glue of a whole lineup, and none of them have ever gone to the Arizona League and pummeled it like Joey Gallo did. Yeah, it, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what he does next year in full season ball. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch. Because he struggled a bit uh, in the Northwest League where you did the league top 20. I mean, I know he would have been toward the top of that. And he did hit for some home runs, but right. there was even more swing and miss there. I mean, that level got a little fast for him, didn't it? It did, but here's the thing. is He also drew a lot of walks. Okay, I think he got into a lot of deep counts. And, yeah, he does have swing and miss. I mean, we saw that this spring. We saw it all last summer. But he doesn't have to make contact very often to, to have an impact. For me, he sounds like a more athletic version of Chris Bryant. Similar Las Vegas guy, big power. Yeah, that's why I make that con- uh, both from Las Vegas, both long, lean, angular kind of guys. Uh, Joey Gallo is more athletic, I think, than Chris Bryant. Does Chris Bryant have a little bit better feel to hit than Joey Gallo? Is that fair? Uh, maybe that's fair. I mean, but Gallo has the advantage of being left-handed. Right, that so. helps. The platoon advantage will be in his favor yeah. uh, uh, more often, at least early in games. Um, now I sound like Mad Eddie on here, but <laughs> and then they have one of the drafts bigger wild cards, right? And Nick Williams. I mean, yeah. is, there, is he is he the Biggest wild card to draft? He might. He, he's definitely one of the biggest wild cards. I mean, just because he was another guy that's all tooled up and some place to go. Yeah, you just weren't you weren't sure, you know, what kind of um, adjustments he'd be able to make because he had, you know, I mean, we said this over and over again. He has some rawness to his game, but um, he's the guy. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't he the guy who I saw last year at Tournament of Stars, and he just had that one game where he just destroyed. The competition. Yeah, he hit like a really impressive opposite field home run. Yeah, 
and he just he was by far the best player on the field. Yep. And I remember talking to you guys and going like, "Who on earth is that guy?" Oh, you were pumped up about him. And you guys were like, "Yeah, no, that's that was fluky." <laughs> and I remember talking to a scout the next day, going like, "Yeah, no, that guy doesn't even know how to hold the bat." You know, I mean, so yeah. there's there's natural talent in there, but like I said, I, I believe there's there's raw, and then there's crude, which is a term that we don't use in print here in the magazine. Right. Scouts will use it. I think we believe, I think correctly, that it implies it's almost like some. It's almost only used, I would say, with African American players. I never hear it used otherwise. Right. But whatever beyond raw and whatever the politically correct term is for beyond raw, that describes Nick Williams. It does. Right? I mean, he would do things like like he would run past ground balls in the outfield. Like uh, Abisail Garcia. <laughs> he would, uh, you know, slide back into first base. Feet first, first right. you know, just does things that you just you just don't see. But then he'll do other things you you just can't teach. I mean, he has that freakish athleticism. He's got really quick hands. He he's fast. Um, just a really impressive athlete. So I mean, he could be the next Rangers superstar, but he also could be the next Jordan Akins. I yeah. mean, Jordan Akins has outstanding athleticism as well. I think it was a third round pick for them a couple of years ago. And hey, I'm not writing off Jordan Akins, but the guy hasn't hit in pro ball. And, you know, we'll see. Just because a guy is all tooled up doesn't mean that he'll be a big-time prospect. But the Rangers uh, are true to themselves. They have a very uh, consistent approach. They're not looking for fives on their card no, for players. Not. If you have a bunch of fives, they're going to pass right on by you. They're looking for sixes and sevens and eights uh, from their area guys on, on uh, players' tools. And, and you know, guess what? They've gone to the playoffs three years in a row, and they clearly had crashed and burned here at the end of the year this year. But I don't think it's through any – they're a team that is toward the top of the list in terms of major league talent and very much toward the top of the list in terms of minor league talent as an organization. Um, let's go through some other categories here, uh, Connor, because I think it's kind of a fun way to look at it from the podcast standpoint. Best pure hitter, David Dahl, Albert Almora, Tyler Naquin, Rio Ruiz, Corey Seager. It really does feel like the one name there who, <laughs> if you're saying who does not belong and why, I would say it's Rio Ruiz because we have less information on him because of the spring but the deeper track record, people are pretty convicted this guy's going to hit. You saw him. Yeah. Why, why, what did Rio Ruiz do to earn being in the top five? Well, he also stands out when you look at this list because it's all first-rounders and then him. Right. But, uh, you know, he, he has a nice left-hand swing. He has very strong hands for hitting. Um, and he, he has that, that background. I mean, he's from Southern California. He's played in a, a ton of showcases. He's faced really good high school pitching. Um, so he has that, that pedigree already. Yeah, he's hit, uh, talking to the Astros about him. He's hitterish. He has rhythm, and yeah. just it's so, so like that's an organization that had a lot of history with him from the last summer to the fall last year to the early part of the spring. Collectively, they've probably seen a hundred at bats at a real real Ruiz. So, even though he was hurt in the spring, now I'm, I'm blanking on his injury. There was like what blood clot, thoracic outlet syndrome. Is Not that thoracic outlet syndrome, but like a blood clot. Okay. Um, in his neck, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And that Pretty kept scary. him out the whole spring. And he was on yeah. blood thinners and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, just it, for my – I'm sure there are other cases, but I just remember David Bush, uh, when he was a closer at uh, Wake Forest, he was drafted in the fourth round as a junior by the Rays, did not sign, and then missed fall practice, and uh, he missed it for a blood clot issue. But he came back in the spring and was fine, healthy, Pitched well, got popped in the second round, but the Blue Jays went on to have a long pro career. So that's to me, it's not a long-term concern. 
uh, it's a medical condition that they can get under control and you yeah. can play with it. So yeah, um, that's just a, an example that sticks out in my head. Uh, best power hitter. That was kind of easy with Joey Gallo being the number one guy. Uh, maybe for the casual draft fan, would the surprise there be that Carlos Correa makes it in the top five, or is that not a surprise? Um, I think that might be a, a mild surprise, yeah. I, I think the fact that he gets compared to Manny Machado, maybe people don't think about Machado's power or didn't think about it until we get to see all see him in the big leagues because he wasn't putting up giant power numbers in the minor leagues. But yeah, Manny Machado tied for 10th, I think, best home run total by a teenager in the major league season this year. And then he hit one in the playoffs as well for the Orioles. Uh, you know, it sounds like if you're talking to, to people about Carlos Correa, you get a mix of high upside of a Manny Machado slash Troy Tulowitzki. Yeah. You get some pretty outrageous comps on him, but they're all big, angular, powerful shortstops. And this is a right. guy, Connor, like Lewis Brinson, he's a big guy, 6'4". He he's got leverage in his swing. and There are long Absolutely. levers there. But he has... What really impressed me is he's so balanced. For such a big, tall, skinny kid, he has very good balance. He's not out he, front. That's what the, that's what the Astros talked about. You yeah. never saw him front foot hitting. Right. Um, I think the bigger surprise when people look at this is that it maybe not that Correa is there, but the Buxton isn't there. Yeah, yeah. You know? He's got big time juice, but for me, I it feels like his power is his like his. He has he has probably as good a bat speed as any of those guys. It feels yeah. like the plane of his swing is more of a line drive swing path right That's now it. than a home run swing path. That's in terms it. of bat speed, I think he's got more bat speed probably than anybody else in the draft. Though. Right, and that's why I think the power will come because uh, you can't teach bat speed, but you can teach leverage. Right, right. And um, by the time that his bat speed starts to slow down, I got, I, I've used this quote a lot <laughs> this summer. I'm not sure if I've used it on a podcast or not, but it was a summer college league coach who does some bird dogging and just finished playing. And he said he was getting toward the end of his career, and he said, you know, he had a minor league manager tell him that players don't get any better in the minor leagues, but they do get smarter. And he was talking about them physically. And I think that's the kind of thing that a guy like Buxton, he's in peak physical condition really now and in the next couple of years as he gets his man strength. He'll be at his peak physically or he will, where he will be an 80 runner with physicality and all these kind of things. But once he's, even when he's like 25, 26, it'll be harder for him to be at that peak physicality the difference will be he'll have 1,000, 1,200 at-bats under his belt. He'll be a smarter player. And as your physical tools decline, you are smarter and you've seen much more. And that's when he, to me, like when he's 26, 27 years old, that's when he's really going to start hitting for, I think, big-time power because yeah. uh, it will be less of a slasher swing. And if he has more aptitude than that, he'll do it even – he'll get to his power even quicker. Do you, do you believe that? The, the players don't get better? I mean, can I it do. be both? I, no, I, I, they don't get physically better. I do believe that. I, especially post-steroid era, I do. I think that you're physically, you're probably at your peak at, what, 23, 24, where you're still running and you're still as quick as you were when you were a teenager and loose and all that. And at the same time, you've got them coming to your man strength. But there's so many times where guys, you even hear about when they're 22, 23, 24, where they do come into their man strength and they stiffen up and they lose their athlete. Yeah. So I do think that's true. I think from a physical point of view, you're almost at your peak sometimes, late teens, early 20s, and then it's a matter of being more skilled, not more toolsy. So, yeah, I do believe. I actually do think that, that bromide is true. I think you do. I've run that by several scouts since I heard that. They're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
I mean, we, we say it this way. They might say it a different way. Right. So it's, maybe it's a simplistic presentation of it, but yeah. it, it's a, it's, it, to me it implies that when you improve as a player after a certain age, it's an improvement of skill, not an improvement of tools. And I, I think that's true. That actually does make sense because I've seen studies online where, where uh, players are at their best defensively right, right at the beginning of their career. Sure. But, you know, at the plate, they tend to get better. They tend to take more pitches, be more patient, things like that. That's being smart. I think there are exceptions to that on the defense side. Like I think of a guy like Eric Chavez, who was a you know we were talking about Rio Ruiz, so Eric Chavez is on the brain because that's who he gets compared to. Yeah. But I do think, uh, especially from amateur baseball to, to professional baseball, the biggest improvement players make on the physical side is actually defense, which I guess that is a skill. But I think that people, I think professional amateur players don't work on defense. You know, I used to love. Uh, playing this game with my son, where we just hit, the, I, I would throw the tennis ball off the off the wall side of our house, and he fields it and throws to me at first base. Tony Lucadello would be happy. Exactly, it was a Tony Lucadello drill. Exactly, that's what we we used to do. But now he gets a little older. All he wants to do is hit. When I try to go out there and throw, we even long toss the other day. Listeners will be happy to know. <laughs> uh, my son was in center field, and I was on the left field line. He got out of the center field at age eight. Nice. Just turned eight, so he was on a line, elevated. Not on a line. I should say he was a. With air, crow hop, throw, center field to left field line. So I was very impressed. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm beaving. But after a little while of that, he was like, Dad, can we hit? Can we please <laughs> hit? Chicks dig a long ball even when the – the kids seem to know that when they're eight. Yeah. Everybody likes to get their hit on. So um, I do. Th- so I think amateurs get to professional baseball and are forced to work on defense. That's when you really get better at defense. There are exceptions to that. Carlos Correa may be an exception to that because of – his fluidity, I mean, he was described with the word graceful in terms of his defense. Yeah. And we look at best defensive player, you know, th- that is 1-1-1. One, one, one. The four first-rounders there, Almora, Buxton, Marrero, Correa. Angel Ortega, though, you got to go to the – Two uh, Puerto Ricans, yeah. Yeah, so you got to go to Puerto Rico for the uh, – what are those called, the Excellence Games? Yeah, the Excellence Tournament. And, and so here's another player, Angel Ortega. We had another impress- best pro debut among high school players, J.O. Barrios. Uh, th- we knew this was a big, strong year for the year in Puerto Rico, for the yeah. draft class. This was a, a significant year in Puerto Rico, borne out by the fact they had the first Puerto Rican ever to go 1-1. Um, tell us a little bit, though, about a- Angel Ortega and J.O. Barrios. Ortega drafted by the Brewers, Barrios by the Twins. Ortega was just uh, an absolute treat to watch. He covers a lot of ground at shortstop. He's the more... Um, I mean, whereas you could say Correa is the more American-style shortstop, he's the bigger body, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, big arm. He can play back on ball. He can just wait back and just hose guys. It's like a 60-70 arm. And yeah, it's a it's big-time arm. Big-time arm. His, his throws, I was described, have a ridiculous finish. Yeah. Not one of these balls that, like, is dying on the way to first base. His his He throws through the first baseman. Yes. But Ortega is just, I mean, he has really quick feet, soft hands, um, just a, a special player out there at shortstop. He really makes – he made a couple plays out there that um, – one one ball up the middle and one to both sides. So he showed range to both sides, um, you know, throwing guys out from his knees. It was like – he was almost like a, a young – as Drupal Cabrera, you nice. know, a guy I saw in Everett many years ago, you know, when he was coming up with the Mariners. That's what it reminded me of. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. A nice comp. I mean – and and you had, we really had three pure shortstops draft out of Puerto Rico this year with Correa, Jesmel Valentin, and Angel Ortega. And Jim Callis raves about uh, Jesmel Valentin that you know, I think he wrote him about the Dodgers uh, draft report card. And we'll talk to Jim in the second part of this podcast. But 
where Valentin played second base out of deference to Correa. Right. But that when he got into pro ball, smooth transition over to shortstop, and obviously his big his uh, dad played shortstop in the big leagues. And Correa, you know, the Astros talked about, look, he's already six four, he's already a beast. If he has to move to third base, that's possible. He could outgrow shortstop. Right now, they're actually more confident in him playing shortstop now than they were before the draft. But if he moves to third base, this guy's a gold glover. Yeah. And we saw it with Manny Machado. Again, yeah. the player he's comp to. I'm not saying he's going to be Manny Machado, but Manny Machado made third base look pretty easy right. for a dude who played two games in the minor leagues there. Right. And you know he wasn't playing a lot of shortstop and travel ball. Right? I mean, a lot of third base and travel no. ball. He was playing shortstop. So, yeah. um, Connor, one of the tougher categories. I mean, we had fastest runner. Not a whole lot of evaluation to do there. Best fastball. I mean, uh, we, you know, this was also kind of high school dominated at the top with Lance McCullers and Lucas Giolito. They came into last year as the top two guys, um, top two guys on the uh, on the high school side, on the pitching side. Right. And McCullers had a great spring, and really improved his stock. Still fell to forty one, but got a first round bonus, obviously. And then Lucas, Lucas Giolito obviously hit 100 miles an hour before he got hurt. Yeah. We stuck Giolito at second. I thought that was the right move myself. I mean. I did too. Yeah. I, I think we outvoted Jim 2-1 to one on that one. Yeah. I, I just felt it was the right thing to do because, I mean, you just don't see guys hit 100 miles an hour out of high school. So even though he, right now he's injured and right now he doesn't have the best fastball, obviously, um, I think you and I feel pretty confident <clears throat> in believing that that's going to come back for him. I mean, Tommy John surgery is, I mean, really, it's about as routine as it gets now. You right. Know, they've, they've become so good at, you know, just making this kind of a, a routine thing for pitchers. I mean, the surgery, is, I don't think, is any part of the issue. To me, it's all about the rehab. And they do have, again, 18, 20, 30 years now of cases on how you do the rehab. There's some players who just don't do the rehab. But yeah, right. I mean, and I don't think that's going to be a problem with Giolito. Um you know, he has time on his side. He was one of the younger high school players in this class. Um, and, and it was an elbow injury, not a shoulder injury. So that's why I felt comfortable leaving him on there for, for best fastball. Yeah, I, th- I thought so too. And we did not uh, list him in other categories because the secondary pitches tend to take a lot longer to come back from Tommy John surgery than the fastball does, especially the velocity. But I think we were confident. This was a vote of confidence, basically, in that surgery and in Lucas Giolito. So. Yeah. Um, Best secondary, that was a fun one uh, just because you know, we get a, a Paco Rodriguez on there. And Paco wound up popping up in a couple places here and obviously closest to the majors when you're the first 2012 draftee to get to the major leagues. Uh, you get there, and it's funny. He's one of those guys who popped up a couple times in calls for me. I don't know if he did for you. I'm like, yeah, we thought about popping Paco there. I had at least two teams talk about it. Did you have any teams talk about it? I didn't about? have anybody mention him, no. Okay, because it just says like he was a guy that everybody was on. Uh in the draft that everyone liked. And Florida, again, as a team, the Gators were so, uh, you know, were seen so frequently last year. Right. So Paco wound up going 82nd overall, and he's the first player to get to the big leagues from this class. And I tell you, I, I think he had a chance to go in the supplemental round. The guys that I talked to were, you know, uh, I know of at least three clubs that talked about taking him in the supplemental round and wound up not uh, not popping him. Obviously, he fell to the Dodgers and uh, you know, kudos to the Dodger, but a cutter. It's also it seems like it feels like the first time that a cutter got into best secondary pitch. For I us. bet, yeah, and that, that's the cool thing I thought about this category is that you've got a slider, you've got a curveball, you got okay, a slider for Marcus Stroman. Right, I mean, we saw that all spring. He's got a 
nasty slider. Absolutely. Um, has nasty cutter as well, but pretty ridiculous slider. Right, right. Uh, Max Fried's curveball, we actually got to see that in the spring at the NHSI. Yep. That was cool. And it was good. Yep. <clears throat> um, McCullers with the slider. Michael Walker with the changeup. And then Pocket with the cutter. So that's why I thought it was cool. Is you had a, a diverse range of secondary pitches. Range of different kinds of players, right, left, range yep. of pitchers. That, that was a fun category. Um, you know, to me, uh, the, the best debut, best debut, best athlete, those kind of things. Um, the, the, the most interesting category out of that, to me, I think Connor's best debut, because the, the interesting part about it is how, does a, how much a debut changes your view of a player. For example, Sam Selman is in our college uh, debut or Tim Saunders. We'll talk about that with a little bit more with Jim. But uh, you know, Sam Selman, we've had our eye on this guy for so long. You right. wrote him up in the Northwoods yeah, League. I, I think I think Aaron wrote him up in the Northwoods League one year. I wrote him up in Tennessee this year. We wrote him up as a in draft report cards three years ago, the one who got away for the Angels. We've been writing about Sam Selman so long, and he finally gets in the pro ball, and it was just the Pioneer League. It's a college guy in the Pioneer League, but he dealt in that league. League pitcher of the year, 89 strikeouts and 60 innings. It feels like toward the end of the year, he really figured it out. Great in the SEC tournament for Vanderbilt. We saw him. Were you at that game at NC State? I wasn't, no. I know me and Jim Schoenard saw him, and we saw him very good over there for like five, six innings. At the same time, though, it's hard to – this guy did not put it together for two and a half years. and was pitching midweek games against Middle Tennessee State. You know who who I just thought of that because of uh, the, the college track record to the Pioneer League? Tony Singrani. Nice comp. Yeah. He's got a little bit better breaking ball than Tony Singrani, but it's very interesting. Left-handed, private school, yeah. had a hard time finding innings. Um, I think I think he has a chance to be better than Tony Singrani. I wonder if he can move as fast. But that's interesting. That's a yeah. good comp because uh, there are a lot of parallels there. Right. Um, but he had, to me, Sam Selman legitimized himself. Or I wouldn't think a, a second-round pick necessarily has to be a top-ten guy in an organization that has talent like the Royals do. I think he's the, I think he's one of their top ten prospects. I think he's one of the more important prospects, and of course it'll be fascinating to watch. This will be for all the people who listen to too many John and JJ podcasts as to whether or not the Royals let him stay with his slider because they are fastball curveball. They're a four seam curveball organization. And yeah, he throws sliders, so we'll see if they try to change him. They haven't had a lot of success with left handers in that organization, whether it's Chris Dwyer, John Lamb, Mark Mago- Mike Montgomery, going down the line. Developing right. left handers has not been their forte. So. Um, any of the high school or junior college players really change uh, what you thought of them coming in, uh, Connor? Were you already pretty high on Courtney Hawkins and Addison Russell, were you not? Yeah, I mean, we were always high on those guys. I mean, those guys pretty much – obviously it's great to see high school players go out and dominate the way those guys did, but those were all high-profile guys. I don't think any of those were major surprises. And then uh, closest to the majors is one I wanted to ask you about as well before we uh, pieced out here, especially on the high school side. The college side I think is a little bit easier – you know, all these guys, Paco's already in the big league. Stroman was going to double-A before he got the, the the drug suspension. We'll see kind of what goes on there. Zanino reached double-A, but he's a catcher. I think Zanino would have been one if it weren't for that he's a catcher. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a little bit more on his plate there. But Andrew Heaney, uh, not necessarily didn't reach double-A, but pitched very well in the South Atlantic League playoffs. Right. Polished, left-handed. He's in the Marlins system. Not like they have a lot standing in his way. And then Michael Walker finished up a double-A. A little bit harder to pick the high school guys. You know, how'd you like the way that order shook out with Dahl, Russell, Almora, Freed, Hawkins? Yeah, I like that. I mean, David Dahl, he was pretty, 
he was really impressive actually. Just yeah. with what he did at the level he did it. He didn't go to a complex league. He went to you know an advanced rookie league. Um, but it seemed like he was he was one of those guys where the flip just kind of switched. Like yeah. he was maybe a little bored or just a little underwhelmed with high school. Just done. With he certainly the whole cruised. High thing. That was the word you got. That if you believed him, I mean, if you believed him in this spring, and most people did, they just said, "Well, he's kind of just kind of cruising this spring." Right. And his season was over over in April. Yeah. He didn't even put their their regular season. I don't. They, either his team didn't make the playoffs or they lost in the first playoff game. They were done like yeah. April, April 27th, April 28th. Yeah, he had one of the biggest layoffs out of anybody. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe even you know more impressive to see him after such a big layoff from seeing live pitching to go out and do what he did. But um, it was like a loud 360 in the Pioneer League. Yeah. I mean, it was really loud. And yeah. I mean, we got Andy Van Slyke comps on this guy. We got, uh, you know, I don't know if there's a player you like him to. Because he, he sounds like, I mean, Colby Rasmus is a guy who gets a lot of cross-checkers yeah. compared to the, this profiler, Steve Finley. These are like the templates that scouts use. He doesn't seem like he fits any of those. He's a little bit smoother than all those guys. He's he? smooth. Yeah, that, there's no doubt. I mean, he has just a, when you talk about, Pretty left-hand swings. He's kind of you know what you look for. I, to me, I think him and DJ Davis were two of my favorite players in this draft. They were teammates in fall ball, like this time last year. They were playing junior college team uh, uh, competition, yeah, and hitting them and barreling up those guys. They're both athletic. DJ Davis plays a lot more energy, a lot high energy, one of the fastest players in the draft, but also more polished right. than I think the average scout would think when they go in to watch. Uh, African-American high school kid from Mississippi. Yeah. D.J. Davis has more polish than those guys. Yeah. But uh, David Dahl sounds like he's almost – D.J. Davis is more polished than people thought, I think, uh, but than the stereotype, and that David Dahl is more explosive and more athletic than the stereotype would have you believe. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's fair. I think those one players are a little bit more similar than people think. Yeah. The one thing that I'd like to hear about Davis, he didn't qualify for the Northwest League list, but you know, talking to managers out there who did have a chance to see him, uh, they really liked – there, you know, there's not a lot of flair to his game. He's not one of these guys who comes out with all the gear, all the wristbands and tape and all that. It's just, you know, simple. I'm no, just no here to swag. play baseball every day. Yeah. He's a low swag player. Is that what you're saying? Well, his swag shows up on the field, not in, with what he's wearing. I like that better. He, I mean, he had a nice debut. The thing that impressed me the most about his debut, he did strike out a lot, but, you know, he impacted the baseball. I'm going to go all Matt Eddie on you. With the, he had a 136 isolated power. Nice. But, I mean, nice. like, I like that for a 17-year-old from – Yeah. Considering the caliber of play that he saw in Mississippi high schools and then going to the GCL, then Reagan in the Appy League, and then they sent him up to a triple-A ballpark, he still worked five walks in the Northwest League. So uh, DJ Davis, uh, one of my favorite players in this draft. I mean, toolsy, sure. athletic, baseball in his background. And, again, like I said, offensively, I think he has a little bit more polish than what the stereotype would say. Yeah. Um, last one, uh, Connor. Yeah, we're, we're, me and you and Jim have very different ideas of what intrigues us. <laughs> tell tell the listeners our intriguing your most intriguing background that did not make the top five cut for intriguing background. Well, my most intriguing background didn't even make the cut for the Angels list because Jim got rid of it. Oh, I didn't even know that. But uh, the Angels drafted a catcher late. It's it on the cutting room floor. Is what you're it's saying. on the cutting room floor. Yeah, but they drafted. I mean, and we wrote about this guy bringing up Jupiter again. We wrote about this guy in Jupiter last year. Um. His name's Peter Pizarro. They drafted him way down, let's see, 35th round. Yeah, out of Bird High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I don't even think I wrote him up in Louisiana. That was was a mistake. That's an oversight. Well, I should have written him up. It's all right. Um, But this is a kid who is 
drafted out of high school, obviously, but he's already been married for almost a year. That's and unusual. Ha- and has a child already. It's unusual so. to be married and have and a kid and playing in the GCL. Yes. I mean, it's it's not unusual, I guess, for high school students to have kids. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to be a pro athlete, to have all that on your plate, that is that is unusual and, and that is intriguing to me. Um, there is DJ Davis right now on the cover of our ma- of our website, by the way. I didn't even know nice. that. That's kind of yeah. cool. That, that's changed since we came into the podcast. Note. See, look. Just what I said, no wristbands, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's just uh, kind of out there. How do you spell Pizarro's last name again? Uh, uh, P-I-Z-A-R-R-O. That's a, that, that was a that was an interesting draft. The Angels had no money to spend. So no, they had no money to spend. They had you know obviously the smallest you know pool of any any team because they didn't have a first and second round pick after signing Pujols and, and C.J. Wilson. See, like I wonder if there was there a way for them to just to, you know we're just going to make this draft. We're going to draft eight or nine players. We're going to spend all the money on those guys. Yeah, we're going to keep on drafting the rest of them after, but we're not going Even to Even then, though, I mean, they just didn't have <laughs> – they didn't have a lot of money to spread around. I mean, um, but I do think they got some interesting guys, even even without any money to spend. And I like R.J. Alvarez and Alex Yarbrough, who they got at the top. I like, uh, you know, Eric Stamens. Yeah, Austin Adams. Treating shortstop with, with some speed and some defensive ability. Austin Adams, and to me, the, the, their upside guys are in the middle round, Reed Scoggins and Yancey Almonte. Those, yeah. are, those are their, their upside guys in this Angels draft. Yeah, yeah, um, they're really excited about Almonte. Our human interest, our number one human interest intriguing background shocked me. Aaron Jones, I didn't think we voted for him as number one. He doesn't even play baseball. He quit to become a firefighter. Yeah. I didn't think that was the most intriguing high school draft uh, or college draft. I, that, that surprised me. I didn't think we'd put him one. For me, Patrick Kivlihan is the most intriguing guy. I think so. I mean, I know we do have football, baseball players all the time. You don't have football guys who don't play baseball for three years, and then when they don't touch a baseball bat for three years, then decide, okay, as a senior, I'm going to go ahead and play. They don't dominate the Big East like Kivlihan did, and then win Northwest League MVP like Kivlihan did. That's the intriguing part to me. It's not that he's a football, baseball guy. It's a guy who didn't touch a bat and glove for three years, then once he did four years, four years, then yeah. once he did, he was just dominant. Yeah, that's the intriguing that part to me. So I thought he would have been one. Terrence Owens is the quarterback at uh, at Toledo, who has not played baseball for like six years and got drafted. So we'll see if he, if the Padres, uh, can lure him to baseball. Kieran Lovegrove, my World Baseball Classic uh, crush, continues. Yep. Uh, he got hammered for South Africa in two different appearances in the World Baseball Classic, but that still intrigues me. And of course, Giolito. Who's the Connor Jackson of his generation with parents who act? Yeah, uh, I, I forget about what is his wife. What is his wife? What is his mom? What's her acting chops? Because the well, dad, I, uh, I remember her I name saw is her. Lindsay Frost, and her her whole family is actually involved in uh, in in show business. I think her her father is like a, a writer or director, and her brother is a, a director. So I, I believe. I'm going off memory here, but uh, oh, she's I think familiar. Yeah, I think her uh, her brother was like the writer for Twin Peaks. I don't know if if his parents actually met on the set, but I think they've been in things together. And I don't know when they got married, but I think they were on maybe Twin Peaks together, and I think they might have been on like Days of Our Lives or something like that together. But uh, both Giolito's parents are actors. Well, I think his mom is, is an actress still, even though maybe she hasn't been in anything recently. But uh, I think. Lucas's father has moved on to other things. I think he runs uh, some sort of um, 
video game company, like iPad gaming, oh, really? gaming okay. company or something like that now. But but no, she's actually been in some some notable things. I think she was in The Ring. She's been on a lot of TV shows, and then of course uh, his dad was in an awesome episode of Who's the Boss. Oh, I didn't know where that. He was a uh, Angela. I actually found the Samantha. whole episode on uh, <laughs> on YouTube. You can watch it. I I tweeted it this spring because his dad is a like a ballet instructor, and he has some short shorts. It's pretty good. It's definitely <laughs> well, like classic it. 80s television. So it looks like his maternal grandfather, Giolito's maternal grandfather, Warren Frost, was in Twin Peaks. He was in Seinfeld as Mr. Ross. I forget who Mr. Mr. Ross, Ross is. Yeah. The Cheever Letters, The Foundation, The Wizard. It's a recurring character because that yeah. first one's 92, but then he was also in an episode in 98. Yeah, I don't remember huh. that episode. I, I'm not a Seinfeld uh, expert. I don't even pretend to be, but... I'm surprised. Ar- archive footage. Uh, I don't recognize him. But anyway, um, not no, the photos were popping up on IMDb. But yeah, Lucas Giolito probably actually more intriguing than the fifth most intriguing. Probably more intriguing than the dude who quit to be a firefighter. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, to me that was a pretty good one. Um, I, I, the intriguing background though that is probably the one that Jim and I argue about the most. It is the most divisive, different things. I think, yeah. di- different things intrigue us. Right. So. Um, and I think the other part of this is that Editor-in-Chief Will Lingo edits all these, so he winds up being a deciding uh, extra vote. Sometimes. He's the voice of reason. That's a great way to describe him. So uh, best late-round pick, uh, Connor, who'd you have? We'll, we'll wrap with this. Well, we already mentioned uh, Yenti Almonte a little bit, but I think my most interesting guy was Keone Kilo. He did sound pretty interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he was um, he was kind of a, a pop-up guy. He was a guy I didn't have when he was drafted out of high school two years ago. I didn't have anything on him. The Mariners took took him uh he went to like a west seattle high school and uh they took him i think 29th round or something like that didn't sign went to a a good community college program there everett community college and really kind of made a name for for himself there his velocity picked up in the springtime and then i guess you know after he signed his velocity picked up even more he he was actually touching 100 miles an hour in instructs in the mid 90s i mean he's a little you know tightly wound reliever but uh it sounds like well most guys I talked to thought he was going to be a reliever. It sounds like the the Rangers are going to give him a chance to start next year, um, but you know a power arm there for for the Rangers in the twelfth round. That's that's just, good. Just what they need more power arms. I mean, yeah. they seem like they do a, again. They just do a tremendous job of identifying. Guys oh, and actually, tools. I'm sorry to interrupt. This, another just semi interesting thing about him. You remember that. Uh, Junior college play that was all over Sports Center from the Northwest, where the kid jumped over the wall and made oh, that yeah. catch. Keone Keeler was actually the one who hit that ball. Oh, seriously? Yeah, because he was a two-way guy for Everett, and he actually he hit that ball. <laughs> that was yeah, that was awesome. Yep. That was the 2011. Yeah, I thought you were going to say this was the college where uh, the softball player carried the other, the two softball players carried the other girl around the bases. No, nope, but that was my college, and that I, was I Central see, Washington. Like, that was Central Washington, and I see billboards for it out here in North Carolina. And, that's always nice to see. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's worth uh, that's a that's a great place to end. Keone Keela is a good one. Uh, we already talked about Aaron West, but uh, draft report cards are fun, and we would draft report cards over the next uh, I think six days. We're spreading them out. We're gonna milk it, as Bruce Cosler would say, and then uh, right on the heels of that comes our college recruiting wrap up, where Aaron Fit basically writes as much as we all wrote, all by himself. <laughs> um, it's ridiculous. He's a machine. He is a machine, and uh, he's like New York Change Bank. He makes his money by volume. <laughs> it's ridiculous how much Aaron writes. But uh, we are the beneficiaries, and we pass those on to you, our readers. So uh, October's a great month at Baseball America. Hope you're enjoying it. Hope you enjoy this podcast. I'll come back on the other side with Jim Callis uh, to go over his, his clubs and, and his overview 
of the draft report card. So for Connor Glassy, we'll see you next time on the next Baseball America podcast. Welcome back to the Baseball America podcast. Uh, I'm still John Manuel, now joined by Jim Callis. For the second half of our draft report card podcast, Jim, uh, thanks for making the time today. And uh, we'll just dive right in. Uh, the first half of this podcast, uh, Connor Glassy and I talked a little bit about uh, kind of the overview categories uh, with draft report cards and um, kind of the, the feature. And we started off with Connor talking about his first time uh, doing draft report cards. You've been doing these for how long now? Making you, gonna... I, I think I did them. I don't think I've, I didn't. I haven't done them every year. Um, you know, I was gone from BA, I guess, for the 97 through 2000 draft report cards. And I think one year we didn't do them. And one year, at least, we had correspondence to them. But I did my first draft report cards in 1989. <laughs> uh, when I had my first full year of Baseball America, I remember doing draft report cards back then. And uh, all over Roger used... Salkeld. Uh, probably. I I thought he was 90, but it's like the years, I'm getting old enough to where the years run together uh, on me, but uh, back then we put grades on them. Right. Um, And, I mean, I I know you'll you'll, you'll get the crowd of people. We don't put grades on them anymore, which I think is good, because it's even more so than NFL or NBA. It takes longer to know, uh, you know, exactly what you have, although I don't think when... We put grades on them, or anybody grades drafts in any sport early that they're claiming it's definitive. They're just trying to sort. You know, this draft looks good, this draft looks bad. But the the, the one thing, one of the things I'll remember from that draft, one well, two things that, that jump out at me were drafts that that looked kind of ordinary at the time that wound up being pretty good. The Twins, uh, Terry Ryan, uh, who, I, who I actually met in the stands when I was at the University of Georgia, and he was scouting a game I was at. <laughs> Uh, so I know I've known Terry for I'm getting really old. I've known Terry, I guess, for 25 years now. Anyway, uh, he are at Twins 89 draft. I gave him a C plus, and Terry always likes to give me a hard time because in that draft they took Chuck Knobloch in the first round, which alone would have made it a very good draft. Sure. But they also got Denny Nagel and Scott Erickson in rounds three and four. They got Marty Cordova, who was American League Rookie of the Year in round ten. They got Mike Trombley, who only pitched 500 games in the majors in, in round 14. And in round uh, 52, they picked up Denny Hawking. Uh, and I'm probably missing a couple guys. So Terry always gives me a hard time that I gave him a C-plus for that one. And, and one of the big draft stories then, and it's funny because bonuses were so much lower then than they are now. That was the year that, that Ben McDonald and John Olrude got – Bonuses. I think Ben McDonald got three hundred fifty thousand and nearly a million dollars in guaranteed money, and John Olrude I think got five hundred thousand and close to a million dollars guaranteed money, which at the time was just you know five times more than anybody else had gotten. But one of the big stories that year was Calvin Murray had written a note Hello? to the scouting bureau saying he was not going to sign. He was, can you hear me, John? Yeah, I lost you there for John? a second. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm rambling. I, I was going to say, with the, with the, the, so I, I told my Terry Ryan anecdote. Hopefully that made it through. Oh, no, that all uh, made it through. That was awesome. Uh, okay, well, I was going to say, the other one was in 1989, you know, money started to blow up in the draft a little bit, where, where John Olerud and Ben McDonald got contracts of nearly a million dollars, which was about five times what anybody had ever received in the draft before. But one of the big stories that year was Calvin Murray was this top prospect coming out of high school uh, in Texas and had told – had written a note to the Bureau, I'm not going to sign you. We still see that today. But he actually was intent on not signing and did not sign. For whatever reason, the Indians didn't get that message from the scouting Bureau and took him 11th and were roundly criticized. And I want to say their scouting director, Chet Montgomery, lost his job. <laughs> so anyway, this draft where Chet Montgomery gets fired, and, and that scouting staff was loaded with guys who would go on to be scouting directors who will always bring this up about how unfair it was that Chet got fired. 
So, so they, they take Calvin Murray, who, who doesn't sign in round one. They don't have a second-round pick, but yet they drafted Jerry Depoto in round three, Jesse Levis in round four, yeah. Alan Embry in round five, Curtis Laskanik in round eight, Kelly Stinnett in round 11, kid named Jim Tomey in round 13, Brian Giles in round 17, Robert Person in round 25. I mean, it, it's those were two of the 10 best drafts ever. Are you looking at this right to... now, or are you just remembering that? No, I'm looking at it. I'm okay, cheating. I was about to say, um, if you were looking, if you were remembering all that, because I'm looking at it, I, you've told me those stories before, but if you if you were looking at that and remembering the rounds, you were about to uh, blow my mind like a, uh, well, to put it in uh, playoff commercial terms, like a, a headphone jack on the bottom. And that's, okay, that was no, ridiculous. No. I'm looking up, it's just to show you how, those are my two, my, my first draft report cards is, you know, this was Cleveland's draft, you know, at the time nobody knew what Jim, Jim Tomey was an Illinois Juco guy, um, uh, you know, that draft looked like, boy, the Indians had really blundered by taking Calvin Murray, and I, I put a C-plus on the Twins, and those are probably two of the 10 or 15 best drafts of all time. Yeah, those are good drafts. <laughs> those are really, those are really good drafts. I mean, the, the Indians draft, uh, is ridiculous with uh, just just with Giles and Tomey, just by Tomey alone. But the depth of that draft class is pretty ridiculous. And I'll also note the Twins took one of my all-time favorite area scouts at that time, Tim Moore, who no longer works in this area, works out on the West Coast for the Braves. Um, but Timmy Moore was uh, well known, <clears throat> excuse me, in this uh, in these parts for being uh, one of the louder singers during uh, between innings music or, or walk-up music. Of any scout, so I always love shout out to Timmy Moore, uh, who was drafted that year by the Twins. I always love Timmy, uh, big personality and a good good guy. Um, but anyway, that that's like you said, that's a good reason to not do grades uh, of each individual draft because you're going to have some misses because, like you said, it's not so apparent instantly when you have some of the deep uh, deeper sleepers. But you do you do start to feel get a I think you do get a, a decent feel for a draft. When you do a draft report card, especially uh, you know, no no scouting director feels bad about his draft usually on June 6th, or at least they won't admit it. In September or October, if they didn't get the guys they wanted, or if they're or if guys went out and didn't have a great debut, that kind of thing, you will sense a little more hesitancy. Uh, but you still you, you're still generally dealing. Uh, this year we each did 10. You're still dealing with 20 optimistic scouting directors. Don't by this time, don't you think? Have you ever run into anybody who by September of or October, they're like, man, we had a bad draft. I, I have. No, I, I was gonna say, I think you run into 30 scouting directors. I mean, Roy Clark, who's now the Nationals, always talks about how on draft day, in particular, 30 scouting directors are telling their GMs they had the best draft because they got the guy they wanted. The, the, the only time, I, God, I am getting old, John, because I'm gonna go back to 1990 here. The only time I can <laughs> ever remember a scouting director panning his own draft was Eddie Casca with the 1990 Red Sox. When um, they did not sign Frankie Rodriguez, although they would later sign him as a draft and follow, and they had a bunch of unsigned guys, nobody really looked like they were going to pan out. You know, nobody got off the great starts. And I remember Eddie Casco saying, "We did not have." You know, he he was down. You know, when we did, I did draft four cards. You know, this was not. You know, we did not have a good draft. And it looks like, I think the best player. Well, they, they did sign Frankie Rodriguez as, as a draft and. And then, like, the second best player they got was probably Eric Plantenberg Eric or Garth Plantenberg. Fingold. I don't think they signed him in the 16th round. I mean, maybe they did. But, yeah, it was it was not a good draft. And but I was going to say, Eddie Casco was really the only guy who uh, who I can remember. I don't you know, we could count these up, John. I've probably done over the years, 
I used to do all 30, which was insane. I've probably done, I don't know, 500-something draft report cards, and that might be the only time where the scouting director said, we did not have a good draft. That's what I'm guessing. Yeah, I only said 20 because you and I just did 20. I didn't ask Connor that question. (laughs) So I can't speak for all the guys that Connor did, but everyone's always optimistic. Everyone always thinks they had a good draft. Even like, you know, or again, Connor talked about the Angels. They know they didn't get high upside necessarily because they had the lowest bonus pool, but they still like who they got for what they right. spent. That's, I mean, you got R.J. Alvarez, you got Alex Yarbrough. I mean, you got a guy with a great arm. You got a guy who can hit. You get some sleepers. You know, that, that's exactly what we're talking about. I mean, here's a team that had less money and picked last behind everybody. You know, Mark Sappington's an interesting body. Eric Stamets can run and play defense. I mean, you know, Michael Roth had a great amateur career. You can kind of talk yourself into some of these guys. You know, Reed Scoggins is throwing 100 in the 15th round. Yancy Almonte's a sleeper. There's seven or eight guys you can like right there. So, yeah, you know, like I said, Eddie Casco, uh, <laughs> that was that, that was the exception to the rule because usually somebody can, can look on the optimistic side about anybody's draft, you know, three months into guys' pro careers. What was the draft that the Indians had with, uh, with Will Hartley as their top draft pick that – was a bad draft, but even they ended up getting a couple guys in that draft. Well, that was the one where Josh Burns was very angry with me and claimed for some reason I had a vendetta against him because I called <laughs> it one of the worst drafts in baseball history. And I, I don't really know Josh Burns, so I don't know why I would have a, a vendetta against him. But that was a year uh, – I'm going to forget the year it was. Um, I'm, I'm going to cheat and look it up while I'm talking. It was 1999. There we go. And they did not have a first round pick that year Correct. because they signed for Alomar. And, and, when I, and it was in the prospect handbook that in retrospect, I went back and put it, you know, I think I gave it an F and called it one of the worst drafts ever. And Josh accused me of having a vendetta and said, hey, you know, we gave up our first round pick for Roberto Alomar. I'll do that every year. And I'm thinking, that's great. But, you know, you didn't draft him. I'm not giving you credit for Roberto Alomar. But, yeah, they, they took Will Hartley and Eric Johnson, who were out of baseball within a year with their first two picks, and then Jeff Baker in the fourth round who didn't sign. So what I should have said, it was one of the four starts to a draft. They did get Jason Davis out of that draft who, you know, was okay for a couple of years. Fernando Cabrera, right. you know, had some promise, and I think Kyle Denny got a cup of coffee. But, you know, maybe I should not have given that an F. I, I, you know, in retrospect, I, I could have given it a D. But uh, that was not, you know, in the, with the first four rounds of that draft was probably one of the worst first four rounds ever. That's an F. That's an F. That's an F draft. I mean, that's on par with that 07 Astros draft. Now, I, that's the one I was going to ask you about. In recent history, like, because that was – was that Paul Ricciarini who was in charge of that draft for the Astros, or was it? Uh... No, it was Paul. Okay, Paul was in was in charge of that draft and kind of miscast really. He'd been a longtime pro scouting director, and they put him in charge of their amateur draft for a couple of years, and the Astros had two really bad drafts. Um, that 07 Astros draft, did, did the Astros try to spin you positive on that draft? No, you know what? I mean, I don't think Paul. Uh, you know, no, Paul did not try to spin me positive because what happened in that draft, they, they screwed that up about that, that went bad in a lot of different ways. They gave up right. their first two picks as compensation, including one that I want to say they signed Carlos Lee that year who was in demand. And the other one was Woody Williams. Woody Williams, who wasn't in demand, and they could have waited like three days. He wouldn't have been for arbitration. They would have saved their pick. And conversely, they had three guys. It was like Aubrey Huff. Russ Springer might have accepted arbitration, but they had two other free agents who wouldn't have accepted arbitration. They could have had picks for, but they didn't offer arbitration to any of them because Drayden McLean didn't want to. And so they didn't have picks in the first two rounds. 
They didn't sign their third rounder. They didn't sign their fourth rounder. Derek Dietrich and Brett Eidner, both of whom became second round picks after three years of college. Right. They didn't sign their eighth round pick, Chad Bettis, who's same thing. And you, you can, depending on who you want to talk to, they misgaged their signability. They were misled by agents. They thought they could get guys to sign, but they, they goofed and didn't sign those guys. Their sixth round pick, I think, got released within a year. Um, you know, they were one of the few teams. I think since like the 1980 Yankees sticks out back when the Yankees lost a lot of picks to not sign a player in the first three or four rounds of the draft. But yeah, that draft, um, I'm not even sure how many guys are still active in baseball from that draft. No, they're all out. I, but I, I don't we, think we, they have we, any chance to get a big leaguer. We celebrated that last played, year. Please. We celebrated well, last year when Colin DeLome was released that all their guys were out of organized baseball. I was going to say, the only guy who's been in the big league so far was Robbie Weinhart, who they didn't sign and wound up being a senior signed the next year by the Tigers. I mean, Dietrich and Bettis and, and maybe Eibner, if he turns things around, might get to the big leagues. You know, obviously not with them. But, yeah, that was a that was a disastrous draft. Small chance also for Brian Fletcher, their 39th round pick. He's kind of a fringe top 30 guy in the uh, in the Royal system that they uh, went on went to went to Auburn. I would imagine, I was guessing that was the – those are the two worst drafts I can think of, like off the top of my head, where we instantly thought, ooh, that's a bad draft. Uh, Indians and then that, that 07 Astros draft. So um want to ask you about that before we get into best draft. But good stories from Jim Cowell. That's why we love doing the podcast. Uh, get, get, get stuff. Well, you know, John, I'm going to delay us. You know I've got to tell my I, uh, my, the, the ridiculous story uh, about the year I was doing all 30 draft report cards and lost my voice. <laughs> well, we, we've got that story real quickly. Where, uh, what so I used what year was that? I forget what year that was. It was 2003 because I'll put into my story. It was 2003, and I used to <laughs> fiercely protect my fiefdom of the draft report cards. This is a great day. story. I'm just going to prime our listeners because this I, is an awesome story because also that you – I just remember – I hope that you do your imitation of yourself talking to Dick Pedro. I will. Pedro. I, will. See. I will. So anyway, <laughs> so like I, I didn't want – like I like doing them all, and I was very protective of them, so I didn't want to share. So this year, in the middle of doing draft report cards, I, lo- I, I basically get laryngitis, start to lose my voice. So it gets to the point where by the end I'm trying to track down the last few teams I haven't written up yet where uh, I'm like literally drinking a cup of hot tea – then try and hope, you know, make a phone call and get the guy on the phone right away while I have, like, enough time to talk before my voice goes out again. So <laughs> the last guy I could not reach that year was Lynn Garrett with the Yankees. And this was during the George Steinbrenner era, and I'm not making this up, where literally Steinbrenner would change everybody's cell phones every year so the media wouldn't have anybody's cell phones. So, like, I had to leave offices for messages for him at the office in Tampa and whatever, so – I, I try him again. Like it, it was like two days, I think, before our deadline, and my my uh, my voice is shot. So <laughs> I, 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 I I think I somehow weaseled a, a cell number for Lynn. So I call him, and here's the imitation. I, like I literally can't speak. I'm like, ah, Lynn, <laughs> I, I, I'm struggling, and and so. My voice sounds so bad, and Lynn can't hear me. Lynn Garrett is in the parking lot. He, you know, and he's going, "Hello, hello, are you okay? Who is this? Are you okay? Are you, you know, thinking that like somebody's getting, I guess, strangled, or or something, uh, uh, on the uh, on the phone." And so finally, I'm able to to just to rasp out, oh, "It's Jim Callis." <laughs> You know, so Lynn's like, "Hey, I'm I'm driving into the office in Tampa. I'll be there in 15 minutes. I'll call you." So he gets in. And he calls me, and we're talking. And he's like, and we're ten minutes in, and my voice is getting worse. 
you know, who, who's got the fastball? You know, and all this. <laughs> and he goes, and so halfway through, and like, hold on a second. And he's like, hey, Gordon, Gordon, come here. And it's like Gordon Blakely, who worked for the Yankees. And he's like, I'm going to put you on speakerphone. He's like, Gordon, listen to Jim Callis. He can barely talk. And, uh, and I'm like, hey, Gordon. And, uh, and, uh, and so Gordon's like, uh, what happened to your voice? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just real sick. I'm doing those draft report cards. And uh, Gordon's <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And that was it, was it was the day after they had the, the Pedro Martinez game, the comeback against the Red Sox. And Gordon's like, oh, you can't fool me, Jim. You were cheering so loud last night you lost your voice. <laughs> that, that's what it was. That, that, that was probably both the, the one of the highlights and lowlights of my draft report card career. Uh and I, th- I think – I don't know if we started splitting them the next year, but shortly after that, you were like, look, 30 is way too many to do. And, you know, you, you even, like, lost your voice. So I, that led to me uh, releasing parts of my, my draft report card fiefdom. <laughs> that's a great story. For some reason, I thought it was Dick Tidrow that was the last guy, not Lynn Garrett. But that's even better. And you know, I, I had – Good luck with, you know, Dick is a, is a, you know, very good guy. Once you get him on the phone, he's hard to get on the phone, but it was funny. I had good luck getting Dick Tidrow to do draft report cards most years. Yeah, I, uh, and I got to meet him uh, last year for the, for, well, I met him before, but uh, talked to him in person for a long time at a, uh, at a game last year, and uh, it was awesome. Uh, just really fun guy to talk baseball with, but, uh, and that's the thing. These are, these are fun to do, and uh, we're teasing them with a lot of free content this year, one free one per division, which is also fun. Um, and I think it's a window on kind of what we do. And I think it's also funny, Jim, you mentioned 2003 Yankees. Uh, that was not a, a big time draft for the Yankees as it turned out. They didn't, you know, not a lot went well for them in that draft, but they did draft Tyler Clippard in that draft. Uh, who's gone on to have a nice big league career with the Nationals as a relief pitcher. Um, and now TJ, TJ Bean got to the big leagues. I think he's now uh, following me on Twitter as a volunteer assistant coach somewhere. And then the 23rd, uh, t- uh, t- uh, 19th round, they got Jeff Karstens. So two useful big league pitchers uh, for the Yankees in that in that draft that was uh, where the call was so funny that Gordon Blakely and Lynn Garrett put you on speaker. Uh, that's the best part of that story. And we thought Eric Duncan was going to be a star for a while too. Their first round pick. It's you know it was so interesting back in those days. Uh, and the Yankees still. I mean now the rules have changed, but the Yankees were were somewhat conservative in the draft. They drafted actually in general. They didn't throw their financial muscle around. That was the year they drafted Daniel Bard and didn't spend to sign him in the 20th round. David Perch they, as well. Yeah, ten, yeah, exactly. You know, both those guys became first-round picks. They tended to um, they tended to draft a lot of college seniors who would go in and play well in the New York Penn League because Steinbrenner liked that. Yeah. Um, I remember I'd talk to people all the time and say, you know, why aren't the Yankees more aggressive? And everybody would be like, don't write that. Do not write that. We don't need the Yankees <laughs> getting any ideas. Um, and you know, and they did get aggressive for a couple of years. The year they got the most aggressive, they didn't have, they they missed on a lot of the guys they spent money on. And now they're they're more instead of going for the big money guys, they'll go three hundred thousand here, five hundred thousand there. And and now the new rules limit what you can do in that regard. But but the Yankees they went through like a seven or eight year period where the best big leaguer they drafted was Brandon Clawson. Yeah, um, that was a weird that was a weird period. And that was as they were building a dynasty at the major league level. It was when they were winning all those worlds. They were picking low, and I think I think the attitude was we're going to throw all our money into the big league club. And they were always real aggressive internationally, right. but in the draft they just they they never they weren't. It wasn't just they weren't aggressive; they were conservative. Eric Duncan, by the way, also a volunteer assistant coach. He quit baseball. I think he played in 2012 in the minors somewhere. He's a volunteer assistant at Seton Hall now. And um, there was somebody else you mentioned in there who had uh, oh, and you talk about spending. 
And like you said, the Yankees, since 2007, that was the year where they really spent, they had $3 million players, Brackman, uh, Bradley Suttle, and then uh, uh, Carmen Angelini. But if you go just look at – so for this story we're, that our correspondent Alex Spear is working on about the Red Sox farm system, um, I, I went back and just looked at 2006 to 2011 and basically counted up the overslot uh, guys that the Red Sox had drafted. And it was 36 overslot signees. And that sounds like a lot, right? That's six a year over six years. That's right. Lot, right? Yep. The Yankees, over that same period, guess how many they had? Well, I know they had more only because I saw your email on the subject. Okay, uh, well, 46. 40. That surprised me. So that's basically an average of seven guys a year. Now, some of those are on the borderline of being over slot. Like Tyler Austin at $130,000 in the 13th round. Is that over slot? You could debate that, yes or no. Nick Turley in the 50th round. I forget if he was 125 or 150. Um so, but it was roughly 40, and if you want to be generous, you'd say up to 46. If you want to say be conservative, it's like 42, because there were a, a lot of 140, 125. Uh, well, it wasn't only 125,000 in my count, I don't think. Um, but the point is, they were aggressive, but like you said, they weren't aggressive at the top, top end, except for that one year in 2007. So, just since I'd done that research, I thought it was interesting to uh, get that out. We've already gone very far in this podcast. We haven't talked about the 2012 draft at all. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, we've done great draft report card history. That's so. okay because Connor and I did, really did break down most of these categories. But I do think people want to know what year 2012, who, you know, best draft and why. I wanted to bear down on that with you because you, you're the face of the draft uh, in my mind, Jim. So you're the um, so to me the best draft number one Astros. Obviously, I did that. I did the Astros. Uh, I think you wrote up the Blue Jays, or did Connor do that? No, I had the Blue Jays. And then Cardinals, Twins, and Padres. Uh, Astros, I mean, again, the whole decision process on this wasn't yours. But the, did you think the Astros had the best draft, or, or were you just, did I convince you that the Astros had the best draft? I think, you know what, I think when I came in, you know, we all kind of came into that meeting, you know, focusing on our teams and then could discuss them as a whole. And I think you convinced me, I, I think I came in thinking Blue Jays, but... I think you put it, and I think this was a good way to put it, and it's why I would put the Astros number one after I thought about some more. I do think the Blue Jays maybe have the most upside, the most high upside guys in the draft, but a lot of them come with risk. You know, DJ Davis, very exciting athlete, but, you know, he's kind of raw. You know, Marcus Stroman, you know, great arm. You know, he might be a reliever in the long run. You know, Matt Smorrell, great arm. Broken foot really hasn't pitched since March. You know, Anthony Alford, tremendous athlete, might not play you know, might not play football. You know, Mitch Nay, I mean, might not play baseball because he's playing football at Southern Miss. You know, Mitch Nay's another guy who's real interesting, but he got hurt in his debut. Um, so, yeah, I, I, when you kind of talked about the risk involved, I was like, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I think the Jays might have slightly more ceiling than the Astros. You know, if you combined everybody, we had some kind of way to quantify that. Right. But the Astros have plenty of ceiling, and I think a lot less. I, I mean, I think in Carlos Correa and Lance McCullers Jr., there's no question they got the best combination of players in the draft. You're the best one-two punch um, right there. Um, and I like a lot of, of the other things Astros did in the draft, too. I mean, you know, Rio Ruiz, I'm still wrapping my head around as to exactly how good 
he is, to be honest, because uh, I, I didn't do California. Right. I didn't hear him discussed in the context of a $1.8 million player. But, you know, he's a real interesting guy. Um, I like Brett Phillips. Um, I, I thought he was a, a guy who was a lot better than where they got him in the draft. Um, I think Nolan Fontana. I mean, Nolan Fontana doesn't scream huge ceiling. But Nolan Fontana, I think, is going to be a big, league, you know, good chance to be a big league shortstop. You know, Brady Rogers and Andrew Applin from Arizona State. You know, Preston Tucker. I mean, okay, you know, maybe he hits, maybe he doesn't, but you know, that's pretty good power for the seventh round. I, I like a lot of what they did there, so I, I think that's, that, you know, that's got a lot of ceiling in it too, and less risk than the Blue Jays. So the more I looked at it when we were having that meeting, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the kudos to you for that, John. Uh, <laughs> I think the way, when you described it, that just kind of crystallized it for me. I was like, yeah, that's that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, to me, it's it's just funny. The uh, the upside, uh, I, I feel like this draft, uh, this this draft system, you have to draft high school players uh, higher. I almost feel like you're going to – so most teams are going to do that, except for your surefire college players, and push those those top end high school talent higher. So to me, you're going to really make your draft on how well you draft good college players afterwards who will sign for the bonus allotment or maybe even a little bit less. And that's you know what both Houston and St. Louis did, and I thought both teams did that really well. It certainly helped they both had extra picks, and it certainly helped that they both – uh, especially Houston drafted higher, and then St. Louis had extra picks, and uh, they had the h- large signing bonus allotments. I think that's one reason why I like those two drafts uh, so much, sandwiched around you know, Toronto, which I think I agree with you. When you talk about upside, I really like DJ Davis. I really like Anthony Alford. Um, when it comes to upside, it's hard to beat that draft class. But um, I, I'll, I guess I like the draft better that has guys like Fontana and Tucker and Alpin and Rodgers and those guys as complimentary pieces than the team has taken. You know, no offense to one of my Twitter followers, but uh, Tucker Donahue and Tucker Frawley. Uh, one number one, that's too many guys with their first name is named Tucker <laughs> for the Blue Jays. But you know, all those college guys they took in rounds four to ten who are college seniors. Those guys, those are org guys for the most part. Whereas I think that the the, the Astros got some big leaguers in there. I think that's going to make the difference in that draft long term. So now that's a good point too. And you, you you had to choose how you wanted to approach this draft. Were you going to go all in early and then kind of pass on rounds six through ten? Um, I remember when I was talking to John Barr for doing our Giants draft report card. You know they made the decision. You know they didn't break the bank for anybody early because they they feel like they've had some success in rounds six through ten and, and can get some guys there who can contribute, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to just basically pass on those picks. You know, it's a different approach, but you know, they like arms. They got, you know, Steven Oker round four and Steven Johnson in round six, who, who touches 101 and EJ Ansonosa in round seven, who's got a great sinker. And they, they like Shiloh McCall, their ninth rounder. It was a different approach. I, I think it's going to be interesting. You know, I, I don't know if a lot of fans have thought about this much, but you know, we had the new rules this year, but the transition to the new rules really isn't done because the one thing we that, that didn't change, in this draft is we had the old free agent compensation system where you had, you know, 30 or so compensation picks for free agents this year. Uh, you know, I was, I was eyeballing a fan actually sent me a breakdown. He was asking me about it. And then he came up with a list there, there's maybe 12 or 14 
guys who look like we would get the quality. You know, you'd, to now to be cut, the old system, it was based on statistics, and you had guys, you know, especially relief pitchers who would be type A free agents, the highest level of conversa- con- compensation. compensation. What I'm trying to say, not conversation. And now it's different. Now it's all based on if your team's willing to give you a one-year qualifying offer equivalent to the top. I think 125 average at the top 125 salaries in baseball, which is going to be about 13 and a half million dollars. Right. You're not just going to throw that at anybody. So anyway, I think there's only going to be at most maybe 14 or 15 free agents who get those qualifying offers, some of whom will resign with their teams. We may have only 10 comp picks, but they've also changed the way that's going to work too, where instead of adding 10 picks, we're going to we'll still we'll add those 10 picks. But whereas in the past, if I lost a top-tier free agent, I would get a, a sandwich pick between the first and second rounds, as well as a draft pick from the guy from the team that signed him. Right. I no longer get that draft pick from the, the team that signs him. That the team that signs him, that their draft pick will disappear, but I don't get it. So for every compensation pick that's created, one disappears. So th- there won't be any extra picks. You know, round one will end at 30. You'll have, or I guess 31 because of the Mark Appel compensation pick uh, for not signing. Then you'll have your six competitive balance picks. And then the, the second round will start with pick 38 instead of pick 61. That's a, those, that sandwich round basically has disappeared. All it's, it's been replaced by the, the, uh, Competitive balance, guys. That's a competitive balance draft. So that that's the real – there are still compensation picks, but there no longer is going to be a sandwich round, right? Right. So, so we're going to have – there will be you know, 20, about 20, you know, 25 fewer picks before the second round this year than there were last year. And so this year you had – you know, it's no surprise. I mean you look at all the teams we rate as the best drafts, John. They're all teams that had extra picks. Right. You know, some more than others. And those picks just aren't going to be there. I, I talked to the Blue Jays, and they said one of the reasons they were so aggressive at the top of this draft is they've had a lot of extra picks for four years. They're not going to have them anymore going forward. You know, if they do, they'll, they'll have one here or there. And so they felt like this was their last big chance. I mean, the Blue Jays have been as aggressive as just about any team. This was their last chance to be ultra aggressive. So next year, we're going to have fewer picks, and you're going to have even more so. One of the good things about this system, I mean, you and I have talked about this. We don't have to get into it now. I mean, I still would let teams do whatever they wanted, which isn't, you know, that's not this system. Right. But the best things about the system is it rewards the teams that had the worst years, have the most spending power. And that's going to be even true more next year where you aren't going to have the Cardinals coming off a World Series championship with four extra picks. You know, you aren't going to have the Blue Jays who finished over 500 with a bunch of extra picks. Now, there really isn't, you know, aren't going to be teams with extra picks. You might have a competitive teams with competitive balance picks here and there. But, you know, and you might have a free agent pick here and there. But, you know, the teams at the top of the draft, even more so than the Astros did this year, are going to have an advantage over teams, at, you know, at the bottom or in the middle of the draft. Yeah, I, I really think as this draft shakes out, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's going to really be a, a area, good area scouting is going to be at a premium and rewarded because you have to know area scouts will have to know who will who is signable and what round that player is signable when you can go get them. And, and I think that that evaluation will be on a premium. Whereas I think under the other system, when really money was the differentiating factor, um, you know that signability question. But as an evaluator, I don't think an area scout had to be as important an evaluator for a club because you know area if you're putting if a guy's putting out million dollars as his signability number, an area scout is not the one who's making that evaluation. 
That right, and a lot of teams are just crossing them off to begin with. I mean, or or, or very quickly. You're right. right. I mean, it's you know, the area scout's important because depending either way you want to go. If I'm going to go cheap in the middle rounds, you know, I don't want to just throw this pick. So, like, I mean, who knows what he'll be? But the Red Sox, you know, the Red Sox went with that aggressive early, cheap later strategy. Um, but you know, you have to be able to find cheap guys that you like, you know, that you're not just throwing the pick away. Like their fifth round pick, well, we'll see what he turns out to be. But Mike Aguilera from Binghamton, who's got a sinker and really good fastball command, they got for $25,000. They think he's a chance to make it to the big leagues as a reliever. Right. So, I mean, not only, you know, they, they, they saved a bunch of money with his pick. They saved about $200,000 with his pick they could spend elsewhere. But they also feel like they got something. Or like I was talking about with the Giants, if you're going to play those picks straight up, or like the Astros, if you're going to pay full value and you're taking – guys for talent and not for you know cheap price tag in those rounds you know you could do some damage because there's going to probably be 10 teams that are essentially passing on those rounds because they have to take cheap guys to spend elsewhere um and 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 also you've got to be able not only regardless of which way you go in those rounds you've got to know your player's signability not just get the number from the guy but no is he is this number serious will he come off that number you know is there some wiggle room or is there no chance because you can't afford to take a guy with the, the money disappears if i take a second round pick and i can't sign him okay i'll get a i'll get that pick next year but i can't go reallocate his money in the present year i i've lost you know 6 or 700,000 dollars to spend i i've got to be able to sign the guys i take i've really got to know that i can sign them yeah, that's uh, that, that's it. That the, this system's going to put a premium on not just signability, but I, I really think it kind of puts the area scout back in. Uh, it raises the importance of the area scout for me. So I think it's going to be uh, really interesting to see how this uh, how this works out going forward, um, and especially uh, you know in a 2013 draft class, Jim, where you know I did that column last issue on uh, Madison and AJ Griffin, and I I told. Uh, I was talking to uh, Rich Hill at San Diego, and I said, well, and the guys at the top of the 2013 draft are supposed to be Dylan Covey and Carson Woodson. They're the guys with the unsigned picks, unsigned first-rounders in 2010. It's 2013. It's their draft year again. And and those two guys are probably the biggest wild cards in the 2013 draft. And he said, yeah, that's fair. I mean, he's, he, he said, I don't know much about Woodson, but I can tell you that's true for Dylan Covey. And I think we know that's true with Carson Woodson. He didn't even pitch in, in, down the you – know, he was like seventh or eighth on the depth chart for the for the Gators last year. Granted, one of those guys already made the major leagues in Paco Rodriguez, but I mean that's just uh, the 2013 draft is a, you know really the three guys you think should be at the top of the draft list are those two guys and Mark Appel, uh, you know, and and Ryan Stanick and uh, Sean Manea. It's a real toss-up 2013 draft class, so it's going to be very tough to evaluate. And you're going to have a lot of teams with a lot less money this year because, like I said, they won't have those extra picks. And, right. You know, it seemed like for whatever reason, not not us, but there were media reports, you know, around draft time when you know more people cover the draft. They're like, okay, this year's draft is down, but next year's going to be pretty good. Well, next year's not pretty good. I, I think 2013 is kind of comparable to 2012, and that's yep. an overall mediocre crop. I do think that the biggest plus is this year. It's just seemed like left-handers. Left-handed pitching was few and far between. Yep. You have those guys next year. There's more. Le- it almost seems like there's more lefties uh, toward the top, you know, than righties. Once you get past, you know, Appel and Stanek. Um, but you know, the college position players are still kind of all over the place. I don't think next year's high school crop impresses me as much as this year's high school crop. So I think overall, I mean, next year's draft might even be a little bit worse than this year's. It, it's certainly not any better. I think I, I think I'm with you. 
Uh, I think it might be worse. I mean, at least this year you had some shortstops. You had some athletes. So there's some athleticism next year, but uh, yeah, our our brief uh, look, our, our start of the look at the 2013 draft class does not d- just didn't thrill me. Our preseason top, our, our first uh, top 50 really just did not uh, do a ton for me, Jim. So um, real quick uh, on this, uh, I think one of the things that people want to hear about, maybe we, we teased it on Twitter, was uh, most intriguing background. Because you and I seem to disagree always on what's what what intrigues us. Um, see, I thought that our number one human interest story was either Patrick Kivlahan or Kieran Lovegrove, but you wound up with Aaron Jones, uh, who, who's not in baseball anymore. I guess that's why I thought he wasn't going to be the number one human interest story because he quit to be a firefighter. Yeah, well, I guess I mean I will say ranking those. I mean, when you I mean, like, it's easy to rank best fastball or fastest. Sure, guy. this is a little more we're, subjective. We're ranking those. It's like it's kind of apples and oranges, and it's like I, I've never even figured out how we don't. We, I mean, we probably disagree on that. <laughs> like, I, I could come out, John, and say long tossing sucks and it's terrible, <laughs> and we probably wouldn't disagree about that. And, and I don't believe that. Just to clarify, <laughs> we probably wouldn't disagree about that as much as we do about intriguing background. And I, I've never even figured out what it is. But I even I, I even joked about it going in, and then we proceeded to disagree about it. Yeah. And I even uh, I, yeah, I was like, what can you do? Uh, you know. And then I was like, you know, Connor, I think is more of your school of background. But like, Will seems to agree with me, so I think right. we're going to include Will in that meeting next year. But like, I, I guess when I look at it, I look at it like. Could I write an interesting feature based on this background? And I, and I, you know, again, I don't know why we disagree so much. We just do. I guess with Kivlahan, I did come around a little bit in that your point was not that he was a. It's not just that he's a former football player, but that he's a former football player who hadn't played for four years, and then came out with Big East Player of the Year, Northwoods Northwoods League MVP. The That's ironic thing was, of course, I argued for his debut being on Best Pro Debuts, right. and lost that argument. So I'll give you that. But I guess I just with Kivlahan, well, and I, that, that would be a feature story, obviously. There's always football guys. Like to me, and I don't even remember where I ranked him, but like to me. The Terrell, or not Terrell, it's the Terrence Owens, the quarterback at Toledo who hasn't played since he was a sophomore in yeah, high school. He's right behind Kivlahan. Yeah, I put him behind. See, so I, I gave you guys that. You did. I, to me, that's more unique. I, I guess I look at uniqueness, but but for whatever reason, we just don't see eye to eye. And with Aaron Jones, you just don't see too many guys quit baseball to become firemen. I guess I just, we just, maybe we just don't hear about it. Maybe they're just guys who aren't drafted. But I guess that's the thing. Like that's where the that, that is a story, but it's not really a story for Baseball America. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. To put it in your thing, like oh, he's not he's not a baseball player for the future anymore. So he could uh, always come back, John. He could always come back. Come on. He, like uh, Kyle Hancock. Like I guess that's, that was like the wasn't it Kyle Hancock who was the Rocky second rounder who quit for three years and. Yeah, but there was like all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, with that one, so okay. I know he tried to. I know he uh, tried to go back to college and wasn't able to go back to college. He was ruled ineligible, and he actually came back to the Rockies after three or four years. So, um, but yeah, I thought Kieran Lovegrove also was going to check in higher, the South African pitcher. But uh, but it is and we, we well, completely you know, do. I, I do like your explanation though. So at least that's where I come from. So maybe you know I don't know why we disagree, but like Will again, and although my explain and I guess uniqueness is another way I look at it, but like Will. 
Will was stunned, John, that not only did you not like my anecdote about Red Sox first round pick Brian Johnson's mother being one of the Doubleman twins, he was like, which didn't make the cut. Will couldn't believe that. He he, I don't know if Will was more flummoxed by the fact that that did not make the cut after our meeting, or that you didn't you purported to not even know what a Doubleman twin was. I guess I that commercial just did not resonate with me uh, for whatever reason. The Doubleman twins just did not. I just didn't. I guess I didn't think they were as iconic as apparently they were. So now, if that's not as good, and I will not say the player's name, but uh, the Red Sox a couple years ago, a player they did not sign, drafted a player whose mother was a Playboy centerfold. I know who you're talking about. I know we we talked about it off there, so I won't out the player because I was not allowed. I, I was told that anecdote off the record. So that that, that all, the Red Sox get these 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 picks with great backgrounds that wind up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> or at least in the overview. Brian Brian Johnson is in the Red Sox draft report card if you read it there. This player is still in uh, college baseball, by the way. Correct. You could probably drive and go see him. wouldn't take you very long. That's so. correct. And I wrote about him. Uh, I have written about him in a summer college league. I'm, I'm not outing him yet. But not about his mother's, mother's playboy background. No, we've kept that in the past. But honestly, it's not that hard to deduce. So um, it's not that hard, hard, not that difficult to deduce. Uh, this player, uh, Jim, uh, I, I, I just want to know. I didn't, I didn't, add, I didn't prep you for this, so I might answer first. I am asking, like, uh, I don't know if we did best late round pick. It, it, maybe it's different from this. We do, obviously, we do best late round pick every time. But is there like a, uh, is there a real sleeper for you in the draft on any of your team in top 30s? Whether there was a guy from your area that someone, I mean, like, like with the Cubs, uh, I know we we have one of the better late round picks, uh, being the Division three kid Saunders, Tim Saunders. Would that be your sleeper for the whole draft? Because he's he had a pretty great debut, and he sounds like he's got pretty good tools. Yeah, you know the, the only thing that I struggled with him on him a little bit is he was in my draft coverage, my region for you know the Midwest region for my pre-draft coverage, and I asked guys about him. I mean, Marietta, you know, has won the last two Division three national titles and, and several in the past. And, uh, you know, if you buy, he's a plus bat with a plus speed and he can play shortstop. He's pretty good. It's just the guys I talked to in the spring. I mean, they liked him for what he was. They weren't sure he was a shortstop and they weren't sure it was really a plus bat. It's, you know, he'd be one. I mean, you always have sleepers. You know, Baltimore had a local kid, you know, uh, from the Maryland suburbs named Josh Hader, throws in the low 90s and commands three pitches. Um, The Rays had a guy in the 40th round, the, the final round, one of the last picks in the whole draft. Nick Sawyer from Howard Junior College always has a ton of guys and, and, and plays real well. And he was one of my draft guys. He's a 5'11 max effort guy, but he's 94, 96 with a power curve and, and just put up ridiculous numbers in his pro debut. I mean, he had a, a 0.28 ERA and almost two strikeouts an inning and got to low A ball. I mean, guys hit less than 100 off him. And then my fourth guy, and he's more of the asterisk because he shouldn't have lasted, but he had an injury question, was Ryan Barucki who's a high school kid, again, from my region up here in Illinois, who would have been a third to fifth round pick if he hadn't hurt his elbow and people thought he might need Tommy John, but he came back right before the draft and you know, was throwing 90-94 with a, with a pretty good changeup in instructional league. So I, I just give you four answers to one. Uh, you know, I mean, the best of those guys is probably Baraki, who only went late because of the injury. Um, you know, Nick Sawyer might be my favorite true sleeper, especially considering he was – a 40th round pick and, and right at the end of the 40th round. Okay. That's, that's a good answer. I, I like, uh, you know, for my draft report card, you know, the reds, uh, it wasn't from my area, but I did get to see him in the college series. I remember just thinking, you know, Seth Mejia's Breen, the third baseman for Arizona. 
I just remember watching the Jacaldo series and thinking that the left side of that in, uh, Arizona infield with Alex Mejia at short and Seth Mejia's Breen at third, you know, we followed Arizona's team all year, and Aaron and I talked about how what a good home team they were because they were athletic and slashers and yada yada. And uh, but then when you actually got to see them in person, you know, for us, I'd seen them on TV a couple times, but seeing them them and their regional was on TV and their super regional, and then in Omaha, you really saw the athleticism of the left side of their infield. Now Alex Mejia tore an ACL with the Cardinals after he was drafted, so I, I think his future he already had a he did he couldn't lose a step. He was already kind of a fringy runner, especially for a shortstop. So we'll see where that you know where that goes when he's healthy in the spring. Uh, but, but Seth Mejia's Breen is a guy the Reds really like, and he hit for a lot of power for them. I know it was in the uh, Pioneer League, but he hit eight home runs in half a season. He only hit one in the spring for Arizona. So it shows you that there's there's more in there. He's big. He's 6'2", 210, but he's athletic, uh, dynamic defender at third. He profiles. He's the profile third baseman if this power that he showed in the Pioneer League is true, and there's reason to believe that it is. So I know he's not a late-round pick, but Seth Mejia's bringing, I thought, for the, for the value in the eighth round, uh, you know, he might be a future regular at third base, and, that, and he profiles there. He was one of my favorite picks in this draft. I, I really liked him quite a bit. And as a sleeper kind of guy, even though, again, he was a high draft, I really liked Joe Wendell. Uh, the Indians took in the sixth round. He had their best pro debut. But, again, a guy who's a summer college mainstay. And I love guys like Joe Wendell, who's – Always been good in summer ball because he's always hit with wood. He was, a, I think, a two-time preseason Division II All-American for us. I do all of our small college pages in the offseason, uh, in, in, in the college preview, I meant to say. And that's a challenging page to put together. It's just hard to find that information. And we don't send out questionnaires to those teams because it's just too much paper, too much. It would just be too much. We'd, get, we'd be getting a 1,000 uh, responses, and it just it would just overwhelm us. So... Um, it's hard. It's a challenge to put those teams together. It, puts me about, it takes me about a month to really sort through the small college stuff. And Joe Wendell's always been a guy I could count on the last couple of years because he was so good in summer college baseball. And then he went out and hit in pro ball. And I, I like guys who have a long track record uh, where they hit. And uh, you know, he's one of those guys, to me, who, who stands out and has that ability to hit. So those are kind of two of the guys. And then you know my other cheese ball is Brandon Miller, Sanford uh, <laughs> right fielder. Looking forward to following his career. Uh, I don't know why I like him so much, but now it's gotten comical. So I'm not sure why I like Brandon Miller so much, but uh, I do have this. Uh, he he hasn't reached Hunter Renfro-esque proportions of how much I like him as a prospect. But I do like Brandon Miller. I, I hope the Nationals one day put him behind the plate. We'll see what happens there. If he, if he can go back behind the plate, I think there's something there. But uh, good stuff, though, Jim. Uh, anything you wanted to add on the draft report cards before we sign off? No, no. I mean, it's it's always you know it's 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 that's like the last thing I guess uh, we always do right before we dive into the prospect. You know, it's prospect handbook season now. Absolutely, uh, will be my focus for the next two months. But uh, no, it's, I always enjoy doing them. Uh, and as we said at the beginning of the uh, conversation, made me realize how old I am that I've been you know did doing them. You know, probably done something like 500 draft report cards and was doing them you know 23 years ago. You're not that old. That's the thing. You were doing them when you were very young. So <laughs> I might be the youngest youngest guy in Baseball America history to, to do a draft report card at, at age. Uh, I guess I just turned 22. So that's hard to believe. That is hard to believe. I, when I was 22, I was I think I was covering a SD7 uh, sports. I was covering a high school athletics in Hickory, and uh, 
I think of that. Well, I didn't cover the crawdads that year. I waited till I was 23 for the Carlos Lee 17-year-old, age 17 year uh, in the South Atlantic League. Uh, uh, and, and met J.J. Cooper, although I didn't, didn't know who he was, but met him at the South Atlantic League All-Star Game in 1995, which was uh, – but that's a different story for a different podcast. So thank you, Jim, for that uh, love, 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 that uh, scratchy throat laryngitis story. It's a great story. And uh, appreciate you telling that one. And I hope everybody enjoyed listening to it. So for Connor and Jim, I'm John. I am John. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.